So how'd your Hawkeyes do? Not very well. Yeah, it's a tough day. Tough day to be an Iowa fan. <laughs> so are they even Division One? The Hawkeyes. I'm doing that just because I love Dave Hardy. Puzzles are the coolest thing in the world, or some people would say they're the coolest thing in the world. I, my first puzzle, my first puzzle, my first puzzle was, was this little guy. Actually, it wasn't a little guy. It was a, a family of ducks, okay, a mallard ducks. And uh, so I got a space puzzle. Do you, do, you, do, you like, do you like puzzles, Jack? Does he? Like right now? You want an easy one or a hard one? A hard one. Okay, so this one's got like Hostess cupcakes and various kinds of treats. Do you like that one better? Or do you like the color lux of the amusement park? You go to the treats? Okay, sounds great. At any rate, okay, so it was a ducky, okay, a series of family of ducks and whatnot. And so would you like, do you like puzzles? Oh, you're, no, hey, there. How about like that? And a puzzle for you, would you like, this one's amusement park? Or I have a Thomas Kincaid. It's a picture. It's kind of go with that one. All right, sounds great. I was saying, at any rate, okay, so the ducks, and I would set it up downstairs in my uh, uh, bedroom. Actually, I didn't sleep downstairs because I was afraid of sleeping downstairs because would you, like, would you like a puzzle? It's a princess puzzle. Would that be cool? Would that work for you? Yeah, cool. That's awesome. Yeah, just rip it out, put it on the floor, play with it right now if you want. It's no problem at all. All right, and then we have this one right here. Okay, at any rate here, and okay, so it was this ducky, this family of duckies, and I didn't sleep downstairs because I was afraid of going to sleep at night, and so I slept upstairs in my brother's bedroom. But long story short, puzzles were always kind of intriguing. Now, it's not like I just go like, oh, I'm going to pull the puzzle off the shelf, but if there's a puzzle out, I just can't resist it. Now, the crazy thing, right, about puzzles is when you first start out, it's just this gobbled pile of pieces, okay? And you kind of sort them, and then you kind of find the edges, and you see how pe- But you'll pick up a piece, and you're never quite sure how that individual piece fits into the pole. And whoever flipped my text open to Revelation 147, Psalm 147, thank you very much. Today is like that. Today is like you've taken a whole thing of puzzle pieces, thrown them on the table, and you're like, how in the world does this make sense? In fact, N.T. Wright would argue that Revelation chapter 11 is one of the most challenging texts in a challenging book, and for some people, in a challenging text called the Bible itself. He would say of Revelation chapter 11, Many people find parts of the Bible puzzling, but Revelation is often seen as the most puzzling book of all. And people find Revelation puzzling, but the first half of chapter 11, the passage now before us, is for many the most puzzling part of all. There are some other strong contenders for the dubious distinction, but chapter 11 can hold its own, our good friend N.T. Wright. So let's get into it, and you can decide for yourself. There I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. But do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut the sky that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have the power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. 
And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. If it doesn't feel like we've just ripped open a pile of puzzle pieces and throw it on the middle and just like, okay, what exactly are we looking at? The first time I read this text again this week, I just scratched my head and didn't know where we were going to be on this day. So let's pull back. Keeping in mind, before we start a puzzle, we look at the cover of the box in which the puzzle came. And we attempt to understand the grand and glorious overview before we get into the details. Some things about Revelation. It is a book that is highly metaphorical, highly figurative, okay? Rarely should we look at things that are described and understand them literally, okay? They're almost always a symbol of something else, and chapter 11 is no different. The other reality is that the book of Revelation, in gathering its metaphorical literature, relies heavily on the Old Testament. And so if we can see some touch points from the Old Testament, perhaps we can better understand what we are dealing with. So we start off with this notion of measuring. Where else have we seen that in the Bible? Old Testament. You're correct, 100%. And for those of you that are great Old Testament scholars, you would say, well, that sounds a lot like Ezekiel chapter 40. And you would be correct. And the measuring isn't really so much about measuring as in dimensions and height and weight. It's more along the lines of measuring creating a perimeter so that those who are measured and inside the perimeter are safe, and that those that are outside of the perimeter, outside of the measuring, are not safe. Again, with the book of Revelation, we have this overarching view that God is bringing to conclusion the history of his created order, and that those who have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ— those who have said yes to Jesus as their Savior and who have followed Jesus Christ with their life, who are in Christ, have nothing to fear. Not that they won't experience suffering, not that they won't experience persecution, not that they won't experience pain, but they will not ever be separated from the love of God. Likewise, the Rev book of Revelation is clear in expressing those who don't know Jesus Christ— do face the reality and pain of an eternal separation from a holy God. In the first three verses, we have, in metaphorical language, described the dwelling place of God, the people of God, the people of God who are protected from anything that would destroy their relationship with God. In the Old Testament, we have the tabernacle and later the temple. And the temple is the place where God dwells. It's where God meets his people. Then, after Jesus Christ arrives on the scene and experiences his life, death and resurrection, the temple is destroyed, the place where God dwells isn't in a physical structure. The place where God dwells is in his people and with his people. And Revelation is pointing us to a time, check out chapter 1, chapter 21, verse 22, where there is no structure at all. There is no temple. And so what we have described in these first three verses is the dwelling place of God with his people and that the people of God are protect protected. 
the period of time, the 42 months, the three and a half years, the 1,260 days. Again, if we look into the Old Testament, we find some clues. Elijah's ministry lasted 42 months. The 42 was the number of encampments that the Israelites hung out in before they entered the promised land. It's a period of time where people wait or are encamped before they get to their ultimate destination. So we see the people of God protected by God through their sojourn until they reach the other side. The text goes on, verse 6. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands. Now, lampstands mean what in the book of Revelation? Anyone? Chapters 1, 2, 3. Churches, yeah. A lampstand is church, okay? So the two olive trees and the two churches. So the people of God, the people of God that in the New Testament is called the church, the olive trees, this is again language borrowed from the book of Zechariah. It's really kind of cool when it comes together. It's like you find that piece of puzzle that you're like, where does this go? And all of a sudden you're like, oh, it goes right here. Boom. You have these two trees, these two lampstands, the churches, the people of God that are protected in verses 1 through 3, and you have them living a life that mirrors the life of Jesus. You have them prophesying. You have them experiencing life. You have them ultimately dying. And you have them, like Jesus Christ, being resurrected. Why do you have two of them? Again, the imagery of the Bible you would have two witnesses for an event, and that would have some legal force, that would have some confirmation that the witness is reliable. This isn't just one person seeing something. This is a verified witness, the witness of the church, the church experiencing persecution, ultimately the church experiencing martyrdom, And ultimately, the church coming out of that difficult place being victorious. Now, as we understand the book of Revelation, we have made the, or put forward rather, the idea that it describes the activity of the church since the time of Jesus Christ. And we would look at how the church has functioned in the world as we know it. And the church has bore testimony, has talked about the activity of God. The church has also told what happens without God and how important it is to be with God. And as we look at the 2,000 years of church history that we are a part of, we know that there has been significant opposition to the church. And in at various places and at various times, people have given their lives as martyrs for the cause of Christ that they have died in horribly painful ways because they were related to and professed a belief in Jesus Christ. And Revelation chapter 11, like the rest of the book, gives us this same concept, this same reality, albeit related in a more personal, intimate way. The opposition is real. Verses 7 through 10 talk about that. And when they had finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. At this moment in the chapter, it seems pretty desperate, right? 
And again, the, the imagery compared to Christ's life, Christ is on planet Earth. He's walking with his disciples. He has this active, vibrant ministry in which people are healed, and the kingdom of God is pronounced that it has come. And then he experiences his own death. And in those three days, can you imagine what it would have been like to be one of his followers? All hope gone. Evil has won. The church's life reflects the master that the church serves, Jesus. And for three and a half days, some peoples from the, some from the peoples and languages and tribes and nations will gaze at their bodies and refuse to be placed in the tomb. And those who dwell on earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents. It's important to understand that not everyone in the world likes the message of Jesus Christ. It's important to understand that while the message for Jesus Christ, for those who are being saved, is the, is the power to give life and transform life and, and assure a future reality with God for eternity, there are many people that when they bump and come face to face with the reality of the gospel of Jesus Christ, which says, even though we're made in the image of God, we have this huge fatal flaw that needs to be fixed, and we can't fix it on our own. That fixing can only come from God himself through the power of Jesus Christ's death and resurrection. The text describes that aspect of the world that says, you know something, don't tell me that my life is in deficit. Don't tell me that I need anything other than myself. And in the face of the church seemingly being defeated, those individuals are like, finally, finally, we get rid of this pesky message of this group of people that are telling us we should follow Jesus Christ. But even though the opposition is significant, the church seemingly defeated, it is not. That which is dead lives again. And the resurrection, a central reality in the kingdom of God, is on display, reminding us of Jesus, reminding us of hope. And then poof, off they go. Verse 11, But after three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them, and they stood up on their feet, and great fear fell on them who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Come up here. And they went up to heaven in a crowd. Now, if you have the opportunity to make a great entrance or a great exit, I mean, a great entrance is a lot of fun, but a grand, a grand departure is amazing. If you have the option between showing up in a Ferrari or leaving in a Ferrari, take leaving in the Ferrari any day of the week. Like John, the church is caught up. A visible punctuation point right before the end of all things, which again happens in the last half of chapter 11. So what do we do with all this, right? Because we got this big pile of puzzle pieces, and we're trying to make sense of chapter 11. Uh, Richard Sachs is no one that you know, probably. If you did, you would think he is an iconic bicycle frame maker, a, a guy who in 2008 said, I can't take any more orders. 
I'm so backlogged. You would know him as a master who works by himself, even though he could leverage his brand to something far larger and more economically significant. You might even know about Richard Sachs that it is his goal in life to make the perfect bike frame once. He's come close ten times. Richard Sachs doesn't care what you think. He doesn't care what I think. One of his favorite responses is simply ATMO, A-T-M-O, according to my opinion. He was recently interviewed by Bill Strickland, editor of Bicycling Magazine, and along a wide-ranging interview that, that covered many, many topics of in particular interest is this one. Richard Sachs said, A path is one way to imagine life. You're on a pathway, right? You're born, you move through life, you die. Okay, it's a pathway. Dunk, 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 dunk. The next thing on the pathway is this. A path is one way to imagine life. So is a puzzle. One of those square ones with the little squares you have to move around to try to make the picture that you know is there but is all scrambled up. Many get frustrated or tired or bored or run out of time and they stop when the picture is almost there but one or two squares are still out of place. I think sometimes we come at the book of Revelation like that. We get frustrated because we can't see all of the pieces don't quite fit. They don't quite make sense into our brains. And part of that, there's a comfort in that for me. Because if I understand God at all, it's that I don't understand God. And that while some things are readily available to my dim eyes, there are other things that I just don't get. And some of the imagery, some of the metaphor in chapter 11 is like having a whole piece of puzzle over here that I'm not quite sure how this fits into the whole. But the picture itself is one of beauty. It's one of God working in the lives of his church, bringing it to a place of redemption and restoration. Bringing it to a place where there is no more tears and there is no more separation and there is an eternity with God. That idea fits well for my life as well. I have all these little pieces, and at times I'm not quite sure how they fit. And at times I'm not exactly sure how my life is going to ultimately work its way out. And, and how does this little detail fit into the whole? Or how does this little piece or this little aspect fit into the whole? And I can scratch my head, and I can look into the puzzle, and I can go, okay, now what next? And I can get bored or frustrated and walk away from it, or I can say, no, I want to engage. Perhaps live with the tension of not being totally sure how something that has happened to me fits into the overall whole. But trusting. Trusting that the God that I love and the God that loves me can bring to completion this thing called my life in ways that I never dreamed possible. A path or a puzzle? I like the puzzle. I like the not knowing. 
I like the certainty of hope. I like the reality of being, a, being able to trust. Being able to trust the God in whose image I'm made. For us, being able to trust the God with all of our lives. Also in the article, Richard Sachs said, be willing to make the right mistakes. How we live matters. How we understand how this book impacts our lives matters. We all come to this point in time today with certainty and uncertainty things that we're proud of, things that we wrestle with. And those things, the puzzle of our life, can do one of two things. They can either place us in a position where we grow closer to the God who made us and who loves us. Or they can increase the distance from the same God. The choice is ours. The opportunity that you have is before you. Please pray with me. Father, I have to admit, the first part of chapter 11 leaves me scratching my head. The imagery for me is a puzzle, and some of the pieces make sense, and others don't seem to quite fit with what I know. And yet I understand the larger narrative. I understand your hand working in your creation. And I trust and I hope and I look forward to all that will happen. Likewise, O oh great God, in our individual lives, we come to you wondering sometimes, how does this fit? Allow us to place our lives into your hands as you bring to completion what you're doing in our lives. Thank you, Father, in Jesus' name, amen.